Hi, and welcome to Grazia Life Advice, Grazia Magazine's podcast. I'm Hattie Crissell, and each week I speak to women worth listening to, asking them to share six pieces of advice they really value and the worst piece of advice they've ever received. Our guest this week is journalist Anna Whitehouse, voice of Mother Pucker, a platform created to share the trials and tribulations of parenting. Anna has her own podcast, Dirty Mother Pucker, season three coming soon, and is also about to embark on a very exciting trip to Tanzania for comic relief. So look out for that. I found her advice funny, frank and brilliantly foul-mouthed. So over to Anna. So you were telling me just now that you are working on a book at the moment with your husband. Tell me a bit more about that. So we uh, have been feeling quite sort of strongly that we wanted his voice to be as prominent as mine in what we do because... um, you know, it's not everybody's set up. Uh, my sister's married to a woman. Uh, lots of my friends are single. But our narrative is man and woman just trying to wade through domestic load, <laughs> <laughs> relationships, sex, or lack of. And it kind of, we've, we're writing a book that explores the bit between when you say, in our example, I do, and the end, <laughs> which is a bit that's not really, we haven't felt it's been talked about. It's, um, you're supposed to, I think people peg your wedding day as the best day of your life. And we had a moment where we're like, well, what the hell afterwards? Like, what's the rest? Like, what if that's your down. peak, yeah. like, what a <laughs> come down for the rest of your life. And the need to even get married. So we're interviewing uh, a woman in the red light district who's set up in, in Amsterdam a hand job workshop uh, for women to explore, like, the hand job, which is a lost art of the sexual world, apparently, according to this woman. <laughs> um, my husband is interviewing the monks in Mount Athos about uh, their solitary sexual existence. And, quite um, diverse interviewees then. Yeah, kind of a mix, but just how everybody uh, finds their happy ending. That's really it. And that it doesn't look like the Disney narrative. Yeah, that sounds brilliant. And you were saying it's, you know, it's important to you to bring dads more into the parenting discussion as well that it shouldn't always just be about what mums are doing and what mums have decided to do in parenting yeah exactly I think that's something we were just talking about earlier before before we went live um is I was on a tv show last year where they wanted um a woman who drinks around her child to be pitted against or discuss and debate with a woman who is teetotal and thinks it's terrible to drink around your child. And they called me up and they said, would you be the woman that drinks around your child? I said, well, I'm not exactly sort of running around funneling beer and nicking my kids <laughs> petty for Lou, but I will have an occasional drink. I don't feel strongly either way, but I wasn't feeling well. And I said, do you mind actually if my husband uh, comes on the show and has this debate? Because he's as involved in the process as I am. He didn't just spunk and leave. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's here too. And they said, no, no, we would like um, two women. We want two women, two mums. And uh, when they asked the question, I went on in the end feeling not particularly well. And the first question was, so how do you feel about drinking around children? And I said, well, I think the bigger issue here is that you have pitted two mums against each other. Uh, my husband was just as interested in having this discussion. But I think the media, the media basically wanting the equivalent of a sort of digital TV, radio wet t-shirt competition almost Mm. is what it felt like um putting two women in a pit to talk about an issue that I don't think there are those two extremes alcoholic mother versus teetotal mother I think there is a lot of gray in between and 
that's the narrative that we want to break down is that he is as much a part of what we're doing as I am. So it's parenting, not mothering or fathering. That's how we sort of speak about things. Yeah, that's so refreshing that you bring that sort of reality check to the whole parenting discussion, which I think can, you know, get so poisonous, the, the conversation around mothers and... I just you know. can't even keep up with the terms. I don't, what is a tiger mum? I hear these things, I'm like, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, uh, tiger mums. I'm like, where are they getting through the day mums? <laughs> They're my people. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to get into your life advice. So the first one is from your dad. Tell me what your dad advised you. Yeah, he's uh, he's very level-headed. So he's he's a lawyer. So he's always um, been quite practical in his approach. Uh, so when I was a teenager and we um, fell out hugely uh, for various things, most of it involving kind of archers and lemonade and really bad <laughs> boyfriend choices, um, we used to communicate through letters. So he would put a letter onto my door when he couldn't really articulate to my face how he was feeling because he was so angry and upset and I would then take my time take a deep breath and send him a letter back and we would communicate this way and um, I think we always kept that communication Uh, so I listened to him and his main advice was um, that it's important obviously to be inspired by people you know I think that's this word is used a lot inspiring women inspiring which can sometimes feel quite isolating like I'm not doing enough I'm not an inspiring woman yeah I I feel this pressure Uh, I think the word is overused I think you can take um, elements of different amazing things that people are doing but not feel isolated by it and um, his advice my dad was to be inspired but to not feel you have to look up and put somebody on a pedestal don't feel that that's how you have to live your life because it makes you feel maybe that you're not enough because you're looking up to someone the whole time where maybe there's people behind you looking up to you you know Mm. Um, but also at the same time don't look down on people Um, treat the bin man as you would the queen and I think that has been quite sage advice from the playground, you know, when I was being picked on right the way through to now where, you know, it's a it's a quagmire of opinion and feeling and discussion and debate online. Um, and it has definitely that piece of advice has helped uh, not looking up to people, not looking down on people, just taking inspiration without being consumed by it. Yeah, that's great advice. So is that something that you think about in terms of your Instagram following and your blog following and that you know is it important to you to make sure that people don't think that you're somebody who has all the answers and you know that they don't put you on a pedestal 100% I think uh, I was reading a brilliant article a couple of weeks ago about um, the um, sense so for example uh, Beyonce has done incredible things for womankind and yet some of the biggest trolling she's had was when uh, she called her tour the Mrs Carter tour it was like, you are not the perfect feminist. Yeah. <laughs> you have failed us uh, with forgetting the weight of things that woman has done. It was an expectation of perfection. Perfect feminists is what we need at the top. If you have a voice and a platform, you must be perfect. Same with Lena Dunham. Everything she did with girls was spectacular, but the weight of negativity over her lack of diversity. You know, it's absolutely right that she was, that was highlighted, but in highlighting that lack of diversity, there was an element of forgetting the weight of things she had done for womankind. And I think um, that's what I kind of hold quite close, is that you have to be able to fail 
publicly. You have to have the hide of a rhino to fail publicly. Uh, and I think it is so important to be strong in what you believe, but being open to the fact that you don't have the answers and that you will make mistakes. And when you do, like in an office, you know, the person, and I've been that person in the past, who's like, um, yeah, it wasn't me. I didn't do it because you freak out. You're like, I've made a mistake. Oh, my God. Just be the person who stands up and goes, yeah, that was me. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Fucked up there. <laughs> it's not going to make you any less of a person. And yeah. I think we have to be able to fail as feminists, to be able to progress. And that's something that I feel strongly about. Yeah. Failure, mistakes. <laughs> it's one of my brand pillars. Pro-failure. <laughs> Fucking up. <laughs> yeah, I so agree with you. And I think it's so, um, there's a real imbalance as well with the way that women are often called on to be kind of role models. Like there's often, I read these stories all the time that are like, you know, is she fulfilling her role model response you know is Taylor Swift enough of a role model is Lena Dunham enough of a role model and I think I never read this about men like no <laughs> it's just completely you know why do we have to be role models as well as everything else that we're all trying to do um, the expectation I think is yeah it's, it's a heavy burden to carry and I think nobody can be expected to communicate perfectly every waking moment but I do think there is a responsibility of those in the public eye to be open to learning <laughs> Yeah, that's where I think there becomes rightful kickback and backlash is when people are just shut door. Nah, I'm not learning anymore. I've got it down. You're like, no, Taylor, Tay Tay. You're like, <laughs> well, if you are 26, there's a lot more to go. <laughs> it's fine. So I think that's the difference is being open to taking on opinion and having strong enough to know when actually you are right and strong enough and open enough to go made a mistake there. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned Tay Tay because the next one is almost like a squad type piece of advice from your mum what is that yeah uh so my mum's dutch and the dutch i don't know i don't know it's just a very different dynamic um female friendships over there i was found very straightforward so um when i was pregnant i remember being in uh, working at tommy hilfiger and <laughs> instead they're all really really young they're all like 20 to 24 and I was the oldest one there and uh, I'd been throwing up a lot uh, in the beginning of my pregnancy. And when I told them I was pregnant, they were like, oh my God, we thought you had some kind of weird eating disorder. You were getting like really fat and like, throwing up. I was like, wow, you're direct. <laughs> and it was kind of, I was quite shocked. I was like, how can you say that to me? And then there was sort of like laughter and it was a bit odd and bizarre, but the friendship I had with those women was very straightforward. It was like, you're annoying me today or uh, I really like your hair or you know there was no not as much jealousy and I'm not saying that that's the difference between Dutch women and English women that would be a gross generalization but um I've definitely taken inspiration from my mum and she said to me when I was I think eight or nine and kind of struggling with the kind of clique squad should I be part of that I don't really understand all everyone seems to have a best friend should I have one and she just said uh, even if you are really close to certain people it's natural that you are drawn to certain people um, don't label them your best friend uh, because it isolates other people they will automatically see you as oh you've got your chosen one blessed be the fruit <laughs> <laughs> and it closes you off to the possibility of others uh, and I think that that was that's really stayed with me uh, I don't have best friends I have people who I'm very close with but it's not like she's my BFF yeah that's lovely I've actually never heard anybody give that advice before but it's it totally makes sense 
So, okay, your third piece of advice is from your grandfather. What, what was this? Yeah, he said to me, uh, it was a while ago, actually. It was just after my first baby and I was sort of feeling quite, I was lacking quite a lot of confidence in myself. I think postpartum, you know, there's just like things leaking out of every, I was about to say the word orifice, there's, just, <laughs> there's leaking. And uh, I was feeling awful. And I think he could sense that I was feeling a bit down. And he said, look, no one cares what you look like as long as you have twinkly eyes. He's like, <laughs> you know, do the things you love with the people you love to look your best. And actually when he said that, he said, think about when you have conversations with people. You're not like boring into like, oh God, you know, if they've got four ear piercings or whatever, you're looking at their eyes. Yeah. And if their eyes are disconnected or elsewhere, you start focusing on everything else. If somebody's like, I've got a story to tell you and, you know, I'm telling you something, whether it's sad, happy, whatever it is, you've, you're engaging with someone instead of feeling consumed by your insecurities. Yeah, he said, just look people in the eye and do the things you love with the people you love. And that's how to look your best. Yeah. So essentially, it's sort of happiness kind of radiates outwards, or maybe happiness might even be too strong a word. But if you're enjoying Honesty, life, it, yeah. yeah. And because uh, I think when someone says, how are you? And you just go, I'm fine. Yeah. And actually, there's a iceberg below, you know, the underbelly of the iceberg. And yeah. what was it called? The um, You see the peak of the iceberg and then the bit hanging below the surface. <laughs> That's how I think of people who say, I'm fine. Yeah. It's like, I'm fine, mainly because you don't want to bore people with all the other stuff. But um, yeah, he it's just kind of owning where you are with things, I think, instead of um, trying to paper over the cracks. Yeah. So what's your fourth piece of advice? So this is from one of my dear friends, Mark Smith. Um, he's a freelance journalist. He works for a fantastic man and he is a fantastic man. Um, he's my daughter's godfather. And um, I remember him just distinctly saying, uh, I think just the most important thing is actually realising that listening isn't just waiting to talk. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy to be in a group and thinking oh no I've got a story I've got a story I've got something to say without actually listening to what someone is saying before interjecting and um, since he gave me that advice I was like I think it actually makes you a nicer person absolutely <laughs> really simply and it's more interesting like the sound of my voice drives me insane which is not great on a podcast <laughs> but I'm much happier reporting than I am being reported yes, on. It's a lot less pressure to be fair. Yeah. yeah. I like asking the questions. Yeah. I think sometimes anxiety can cause people to not really listen because they're worrying about what they're going to say next or how they're coming across or whatever. I think if you can actually just really tune in to the other person, it's a really good tactic for relaxing socially a bit you know to kind of remember that it's not actually all about you and just focus on what the other person is trying <laughs> yeah. to communicate I don't know if you found that but yeah I'm very impressed by your fifth piece of advice because it's from Joanna Lumley just oh. ca casual name drop of Joanna Lumley <laughs> it wasn't delivered to me personally <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> well okay well it's still impressive <laughs> Joanna if you're listening uh, I mean I, I, I wish it had been uh, delivered in person although my mum has met Joanna well, and she said she's everything you'd hope she would be and more. <laughs> so you're only one removed from being friends with Joanna. <laughs> so this actually ties into something that my friend Mark uh, said to me a couple of um, weeks ago, and I'll explain that sort of afterwards. But I'm going to read it verbatim because I literally have it sellotaped to my diary, my, di my secrets diary. <laughs> it's got unicorns on it and everything. Um, 
This is from Joanna Lumley and I'm going to try and do her voice. No, I won't do her voice. The secret, darling, is to love everyone you meet from the moment you meet them. Give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Start from a position that they are lovely and that you will love them. Most people respond to that and love you back. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you can then achieve the most wonderful things. But get rid of the bastards that let you down. (laughs) And I think it's something I've struggled with recently because I as my friend Mark said when I saw him a couple of weeks ago I have quite a wide sort of funnel I let a lot of people in which um, has been tricky having a platform because you can't see people you know you're letting a lot of often kind of almost anonymous strangers in which is different to letting people in the office in or people in your family in or or friends outside of your family in Um, and I started to get to the point where I wanted to close my door to this wealth of people who are kind of in my life who I'd met online ultimately but uh, it started changing who I was I just started being really closed off people shutting the door before I'd even given them a chance to speak because I'd been burned before in this kind of new world, this new media where you're, you're speaking with thousands of people. I think cognitively we're only set up to be able to communicate with 20 people within a month. Uh, cognitively we're only set up to be able to have any kind of communication over a period of a year with 150 people so you then suddenly have a person communicating with what 180,000 people. It's a bit overwhelming and they're obviously not all uh, with me at any one point and I think it's my Auntie Janet who's trolling me so uh, <laughs> <laughs> Auntie Janet if you're listening can you pipe down um, but yeah I think it's still I like that from Joanna that I want to remain open to the possibility of everybody being a good person of everybody having good intentions and being more able to uh, get rid of any of the bastards that let you down yeah as your kind of life in the public eye, if you don't mind me <laughs> describing it that way, has developed, you know, since you started out with the blog and do you feel like what you put out has evolved? Do you, have you kind of changed tactic at all over that period? Um, I think there was a point where, uh, have you have you read John Ronson's uh, Have You Been Publicly Shamed? Yes. Brilliant. So, I was publicly shamed. Oh. <laughs> uh, it was a really big situation last March. Uh, it was kind of the Hello and Next Awards. And um, I was pulled in at the last minute in place of Rochelle Humes uh, on a panel of like five women. And what remained then was a group of five white middle class women judging other women to be part of the Star Mum Awards. Mm. And I think because I'd been called in at the last, I just am very much a, yes, that sounds good. We have a campaign. They said, you can promote your campaign. And I just went in kind of without thinking much more of it. But when it came out, um, the backlash was extreme, understandably. You know, it was justified backlash. But um, I apologise publicly because I did feel uncomfortable on the day. I had It was flagged in my mind, but it's that lack of confidence. I stupidly, looking back, didn't feel able to go against a big media machine going, guys, um, it's five middle-class white women. We're judging other women. We're mm. literally sitting here judging other women to find a winner. I mean, there was a moment where I was like, this doesn't feel right, but it's been running for 15 years. So surely someone has looked into this. What opened was a tsunami of anger and frustration at this media uh, mechanic that wasn't diverse, 
that was churning out awards that promoted judgment of other women. And I was at the heart of it as a woman who set this up to support other women, to break down those barriers. It was just a complete nightmare. Oh, um, God, I can't imagine. Yeah. So after that, to answer your question, I've been so careful to not just say yes to things, um, but that hasn't made me any less open to those coming in asking me questions, questioning me, um, challenging me, uh, that remains very much part of what we do. Uh, I'm here to learn. I, I have, I don't have all the answers and I really hope it doesn't come across like I do. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. such a, a good way to move on from an experience like that, I think, to kind of take it as a, um, if you'll excuse the kind of California talk, a learning experience <laughs> and... Um, you move forward from there what else can you do I mean and I think that's the thing this it's a kind of well it's a new world and I think the point for me again coming back to your question was the backlash took five de solid days and nights I answered everybody I possibly could on the thread and there were thousands of comments angry angry comments because there is a lot to be angry about I became the face of that anger and I get that um I absolutely get that but um for me on a personal level, really basic, I'd bought some pancake mix to make with my daughter an hour before it all kicked off. And that pancake mix was there five days later, unopened, as a kind of bookend of this world that can consume your own family life. Like I had not made pancakes for my kids because I was fronting and accepting and opening myself up to a frustration online that you know I, I wasn't protect I wasn't protected I felt like I was stood in the rain naked I don't have anyone protecting me I don't have Max Clifford I don't have a publicist I just it's just like I fucked up yeah and I'm here throw things at me it's fine but ultimately the cost of that was my own family and that's I think what people don't see is that you're still a woman with a child who needs you and mm -hmm. five days is a lot to for the rightful cause for a rightful reason but I, I didn't know it was going to happen and um so yeah there's I have to be more careful I have to think more well perhaps but also we all have to think a bit more about who we are attacking even with very good reasons for being upset I think you know you you're right that perhaps we could all bear in mind a bit more that sometimes the person that you're directing your anger at is just one person just kind of trying to do their best, maybe. But then the offset of that is something like that had to happen. It was like the bursting of a boil. And what I've heard from brands since, which has genuinely made the whole experience brilliant, is that they've said, what you went through there and opened up has made us completely reconsider how we do things as a brand. Yeah, we will fantastic. never get in a position where we have five white middle-class women judging other women. It's opened our eyes to how things are so wrong at the moment. And so after hearing that, I'm like, okay, it was, there's something that's come out of it that's positive. And I think when you see that, regardless of how negative and dark it was for a time, then you can move on and yeah. go, right, there's, there's something that came out of it that wasn't simply disconnect from followers and family. Yeah, <laughs> well, good. Um, so your, your final piece of good advice uh, was from a, a teacher at the London School of Journalism. Tell me about that. Yes, I studied law and um, made a decision kind of at the last to 
kind of go into journalism. And uh, I actually started on Practical Caravan magazine. So my whole family was just like, what? <laughs> you were meant to be a barrister. And I'd done my, um, I'd sort of done my mini pupillage. I was on the road to becoming a barrister and there was so much pride in my family. And then I just did a quick curveball and became the tow bar expert on Practical Caravan magazine. <laughs> <laughs> well, every parent's dream. For and, I, and it was, fa- it was, I was seen as, having failed almost before I'd begun. And and that's not necessarily just by my family, but it was a time when you're younger and you feel like what you do is who you are. And um, I remember my London School of Journalism tutor, where I was doing my conversion course, um, said, it just amazes me how much time people waste thinking about that failure. What if I fail? Uh, I am a failure. Just thinking about the word failure. Just get on with the next project. Get on with the next pitch. A setback is never a bad experience, just a learning curve. Um, And I think coming back to the hello and next public shaming, absolutely. I thought that was the end for me. It was simply a learning curve and something that has helped me move what we're trying to do in a direction that is more inclusive I'm talking to more people because of that uh, I was blinded before and it takes a massive slap across the face with a kipper uh, <laughs> to, to have that happen sometimes um, so I think yeah failure stop dwelling on the failure and move move it along and god I failed <laughs> well I mean nobody would certainly say that you're a failure you're a great success but I think yeah we have come back to this a few times now that it's just going to fuck things up and then just <laughs> figure it out later and that, I think that's great because that's actually what most of us are doing isn't it just try not to be a massive bell end in the process yeah I mean you can make mistakes Wise words but just don't be a bell end <laughs> um so your worst piece of advice you've ever received what was that yeah, it was ironically uh, from my English teacher. I wanted to do English, but I'm uh, quite severely dyslexic. And I felt creatively I could do it. I just knew it was like the mechanic around it was my issue. And uh, he he didn't say it in any uh, way, in a sort of nasty, mean way, but he just said, I would be careful about considering A-level English. Um, and I think when you say that to a... 17 year old who feels they can it's quite a strong it's quite a big thing for a 17 year old to think that they can do anything I think you're so unsure of the world um it really rocked me and actually what he did it was the worst piece of advice but almost with the best outcome because I think that was when I realized someone saying you can't do this it's like I may be dyslexic but I will and uh we wrote a Sunday Times best-selling book and it has taken a lot to be able to communicate online with dyslexia. It's taken a lot to communicate through writing books. Uh, I have a special app on my phone that helps <laughs> helps me uh, along the way. But I think it was that moment where, yeah, I did A-level English. Didn't do brilliantly, but I did it. And it's not always about the grades. And that was, I think... The worst and best probably piece of advice was someone saying, you can't do it. And then going, well, I did. Turns out I can. (laughs) I did. (laughs) I mean, it's called parenting the shit out of life, but (laughs) it's no Bronte. (laughs) Um, Well, that is brilliant. That has all been so inspiring. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. 
thanks so much to Anna and that was a great taster for her own podcast Dirty Mother Pucker so make sure you subscribe to that if you enjoyed Grazia Life Advice please do rate us review us and share us it really helps spread the word see you next week for more advice from women worth listening to 